Even the smallest of creatures can be heroes, and through perseverance and teamwork, they can change the world. Welcome to Amongst the Books, a podcast for kids, by kids, and yes, adults too. Teamwork makes the dream work, and Ben Fisher, Emily Witten, and Michelle Wen prove that through their creation of their graphic novel series, Underfoot. Featuring a cast of hamsters, badgers, and beavers, this series shows how even the smallest can have a large impact. So join us as we learn about this amazing new series. Welcome, everybody, and thank you for joining us for today's episode. We are very fortunate to be talking with the creative team behind the new series, Underfoot. Um, we are talking with Ben Fisher, Emily Witten, and Michelle Wen. Um, this is a brand new graphic novel series that involves hamsters, um, some giants, and some other animals of that sort. So um, I'm going to let my lovely little reporters here take it away. So go for it, guys. Okay. I'll start with a pretty basic question. So you guys are actually our second group that is a team of three. So how did you guys all meet and decide you wanted to work together? Uh, ben, do you want to start off and I'll, I'll jump in? Well, you, you, maybe you should start off with the, with the, the hamster bit since that really- Okay, well, th this is fair. It did all start with a hamster. Um, so I, I have always owned little rodents as pets. And at the time that Ben and I met, I had a little tiny hamster whose uh, name was Izzy, Bitty Miss Izzy. And in her off hours of sleeping and eating, she would tweet on Twitter as a little hamster talking about like what her adventures were when I was away at work and stuff like that. Um, she had some adventures getting into, you know, the, the food and seeing little imaginary creatures and things like that. At the same time, Ben had written a mini series called Splitsville. Uh, which I had received as, uh, as a comics journalist and reviewer from a friend of mine who had done the art, uh, my friend Kevin Stokes. And so I reviewed this comic. I thought it was really fun. And so I posted a link to the review on Twitter and I tagged Ben. And Ben found not only my Twitter handle, but my little hamsters. And so suddenly I had another little hamster talking to me or talking to my little hamster, Izzy. And, uh, you know, the hamsters talked on Twitter back and forth for a while. And then eventually we started talking about how this was fun and maybe we should write a story in which hamsters had adventures like my little hamster has when I'm not home. And it evolved way beyond that for the next approximately seven years before we pitched the story. Um, so that's how Ben and I met. Uh, and to, to complete the circle then, uh, I uh, had been working with Michelle previously on the Grumpy Cat comics. I don't know if any of you are familiar with those, but uh, Michelle did the art for a number of those and I wrote a number of those. And uh, we got, that was how we had met and we got along really well. Ah, see, there you go. And uh, I, I learned quickly that Michelle was able to take my dumb jokes and make them funny, which is always a, a nice talent to have. <laughs> Uh, and so when uh, Emily and I really started getting to the final part of this pitch, thinking we need an artist, I reached out to Michelle thinking she'd be a really good fit. And uh, she came back to us with a bunch of, uh, a bunch of great art concepts. Uh, and uh, Emily tells the story pretty well, but it's, uh, it, there were sort of various, the three main types of, uh, of art, very realistic looking hamsters, very, very cartoony, like Saturday morning cartoon type hamsters, and then somewhere in between. And the in-between was where we landed, thinking that was the best fit. But it was, uh, it, was, it was very clear just by that part of the very beginning that Michelle really, she knew exactly what she was doing for these. And of course, the art is amazing for the book. So that, that, we all linked up and started going from there. And then Michelle was stuck with us forever. <laughs> anyway. I don't know. This, I don't know. You guys created a heck of a series right now. So, I mean, thank you. Yeah, it's, it's a fun one. So, I have to, and I, when I was reading it, um, I kept going back. I was like, this reminds me of like the secret of Nims, remind me of the rescuers. It's bringing back all the nostalgia for me. Mm -hmm. So, I was like in love with it for that way. And also, the drawings and the, the characters, they really did just like, stand out each one with its own personality and everything so i loved it <laughs> that's great thank you all right sophia and Miriam, who wants that 
Go, Miriam. Uh, so I was wondering how long it took you to like, like how long would it take you to write one book of a series? Well, it does differ a little depending um, because, you know, the first book took a long, long time if you look at all of the parts we worked on before we actually wrote the first book. So as I was saying, Ben and I met and started working on it about seven years before book one. I can't remember if that was pitched or published at that point, but it was a while. And the reason for that, which is not necessarily true for every story you write, is because our world is layered and it, it's based on, you know, there's a lot of science and history and references uh, to real world things. It's based in an area that is, you know, a real place, but it's also shown through the eyes of these small creatures. Um, so if you're building a really in-depth like sci-fi or fantasy or fictional world, it may take you a long time like that. But you might, if you're writing like a realistic, um, you know, story, it, it might be a, a ton of different, like a, like a much shorter time, or maybe a lot of your time is spent in research, and then you start writing. So once we pitched the book, um, Ben, correct me if I'm misremembering, was it about a year or, or a year and a half? To, to, to actual publication? From, yeah, from pitch to publication. Was that one year, two years? I can't remember anything anymore. Yeah. <laughs> about that, I, I, and, and yeah, uh, Emily's right. The, the first book, if you're doing a series, it's, it's different, I guess, on the type of, of book that you're doing. But when you're doing a series like this, the, the, there's a lot of front load of, of writing because we're not just writing for the first volume. We need to know what happens in the second volume. We need to know what happens in the third volume. And when you're thinking, you're doing the math, that means you need to know what's happening 380 pages after the first page is written. And it's not like a novel where you can just go back and say, ooh, I really should have changed up that first chapter and go back and do it. We've got a lot of art, a lot of time spent, even a very small, as, as we've all painfully had to learn, even a very minor change could be you know, a week of worth for Michelle. So we've gotta be very cognizant of what we're doing. Um, so yes, yeah, so that first book took a long time. The second book by comparison, the same length of the book, but that second volume was maybe six months to write, something like that, somewhere in that ballpark. So you can you know, already see the difference where we're looking at years compared to months between, between volumes. Right, but then Michelle, um, you know, she has a very heavy lift to do in terms of the art. So Michelle, please feel free to share how your part goes in terms of calendar. Yeah, um, so for the art, um, it really depends on the art. It's just like, it depends on the writer, how you approach um, your work and how I approached it because I get, um, this is gonna sound wrong. I get bored of certain stages of work it's like, I don't want to just like sketch 130 pages. That sounds like a mind numbing task. So what I did was I broke it down by chapter. So I sketch out the first chapter and then I do inks, which is like the final line work. And then I do colors. Um, some artists like like to do the whole thing at once, like sketch the whole book at once. Um, and I, I look at their pictures on Twitter and it's like, wow, you did that without getting bored. That's incredible. Um, but I, I just like to change it up. So um, it probably took me about a year to complete each book, give or take a couple of months. Uh, the second one went much faster, I think, um, maybe nine months. Because as a group, we kind of hit our stride with like processes and and just timing. So um, well, and if I if I could add, Michelle helped us out a lot at the beginning because as a writer. Uh, you don't always know how your artist works. And so she broke down her process of at this point, you need to give me, you can give me lots of changes in the thumbnail process. You can give me some changes at the pencil. Then when we get to the inks and the colors, you know, the flats and the colors. It, so uh, in terms of process, Michelle is um, right that it, it went faster the second time around. And a big part of that was just us understanding what she needed and how we would work together to fulfill you know, a quicker calendar. It's still a long book compared to some. I mean, we we all have other jobs actually also along with being creators. Um, so Ben and I are attorneys and Michelle also works for a company in, you know, during her daytime hours. So it's, it's one of those things where you, you, you're working on this a lot, but also fitting it in between other things. Well, that's what I was going to say. Cause like, you know, I did some research on you guys. So I'm just going like, you guys were able to do this while still maintaining full-time jobs in a completely other world than what this one is. Um, 
so I was impressed with all of that and just how you guys were able to collaborate and find the time to create a series, not just like one book, you're creating a whole series. Um, my question is because it's graphic novels and because the, the drawings always say so much more than text could actually say sometimes and the characters and especially characters where it are like animals, um, how much influence did you guys have on each other when it came to, you know, the character, like the, the basic rundown of what this character is and what they represent to then you sketching out some of what you're looking at and going back and forth. Cause I always like seeing that in the end of the books too, where you're like, this is the different stages of where these characters came from. So I'm just wondering, how did you guys play off developing the character looks too? Let's start backwards. Michelle, why don't you talk about what you get and then we'll work back from there. <laughs> sure. Yeah, so um, it was really great because like Ben and Emily are both very scientifically organized in the brain, whereas I'm not. So um, I would get these really great explanations of like, here is the literal like genus. I don't know if that's right. The type of hamster. It's like there, I thought before I started this book, there was one hamster. There is not one hamster. There are like dozens of types of hamsters. Um, so Emily would be like, this character is a Chinese four hamster. They're going to have this type of marking. It's like brindle or whatever. And it's just like, holy cow. And it's like, they specialize in this thing. And this is the science behind it. And, you know, Ben and Emily would present like personality write-ups of the characters, which were great because it's like, if, you know, a character is very meek and quiet, I'm not going to draw them like big muscle bulldog walking around, you know, breaking stuff all the time. Right. Um, so, you know, you, you really have to take everything into account so that you can visualize this character and also make them super individual because we have such a huge cast of characters. So it's like you have to visually portray um, emotions and, and characteristics of a personality as well as like the type of hamster. And I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. Um, one thing that Michelle is great at is we do give often pretty detailed descriptions, but we don't always tell her what accessories um, they might have. So some of them, yes. So Buddy always had her hat, you know, so that was a thing before we got to the art. But other ones, um, you know, we didn't tell her exactly what kind of accessories, but she would come up with something. Or we might say they have this weapon, but we didn't tell her anything else about it. It wasn't like specific down to the detail and Michelle would come up with something and you know, it would look great. Um, my favorite example of this is Ruby in the first book has a little backpack that's like purple and yellow stars or something like that, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and nobody told her to do that. It's super cute. And we, you know, we did not make that up for her. Um, so Michelle gets to add a lot of detail to it. And even if uh, I am the one who's the nerdy hamster one. So if Ben has already come up with a description um, for something, he will still say, Emily, what kind of hamster is this, you know, in the in the text while I'm reviewing it. And I'll go and I'll look online and I'll be like, what do we not necessarily have one of yet? Or what can be sort of differentiated, which does get complicated as you get a huge cast of characters. But, um, you know, you, you try to figure out a, a different breed for the hamster to be or a different size or different color markings. And then I'll send like reference pictures or we'll embed them. And still Michelle can do her own thing. But hamsters are, I mean, like my own personal hamster that I have right now, uh, who, whose name is Lily, and she's a tiny Chinese dwarf hamster. And when I got her, she had a little white heart behind her ears, little heart in, in the fur pattern. And so they have all kinds of interesting patterns. You know, they're very unique, just like people, except tiny. Um, <laughs> so to go back to your question, um, sometimes, you know, I or Ben will provide some of the characteristics and then the other one of us will work that up. Um, ben can talk about it more, but he is great at like uh, coming up with a sort of an archetype and then building off of that um, where the character is still unique, but has like something recognizable that people might identify with. But Ben, please uh, share your part of this as well. Well, I, I was just going to maybe broaden it just a little bit to say even beyond just the characters, uh, the art in general will drastically inform and change in a lot of ways the script because what you want, and this is not true yes. just for this book, this is true for any comic, but it was, is certainly true for Underfoot, where 
you will write a scene, you will have dialogue in a scene of the characters saying whatever the characters are saying, and then you see the art and you go, oh, well, the way Michelle drew this, it's, I don't need to say anything at all. It's, it's very clear what's going on here. And it's way more interesting to just see the character's reaction than to actually cover any of that up with my dumb dialogue or Emily's dumb, you know, it's it just, it's nice to have just a real, just a really cute face. So very often the um, Emily and I will go back and tweak the script after we see the art come in to to make it fit better because we realize that the art is is done better than words could could ever do so that's especially awesome. cutting we try to cut words a lot after we see how great the art is we're like oh yes that's right we 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 remember how much we want people to just see this let's see if we can take out a few words here and there <laughs> make, yeah. make the word balloons a little smaller adding <laughs> adding is never a good look it's never good to tell your artist by the way we decided to throw a bunch more sentences in sorry we covered up your day's worth of work hope that's fine <laughs> Yeah, a, the hamster's uh, just in the corner. Unless you have a story like, reason. Yeah. yeah, unless you have a story reason, don't yep. add after you've already <laughs> given yeah, them the say, Then all your hamsters are going to be like little like centimeter big ones. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Sophia, you're up. Go. I have a question for Michelle. So how did you find like, like um, Ben said it was like a combination of like 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 Sunday comics and like so how did you find that style because when I look back on like your grumpy cat work it's like these cute cats and then you look a couple pages in and you've got like hamsters with scars and blood yeah no that's a, a great question um I gosh grumpy cat was already kind of a departure for me because I'd never done anything kid oriented not saying that like I love, I love cute stuff. Like I love drawing cute stuff. Let me tell you about how many cute pets I've drawn. I've drawn many of them. Um, but, you know, before Grumpy Cat, I was working on a comic called Rexstar and that was more uh, young adult to adult centric and it's a space opera. And, you know, it was funny and violent and, and it was cuckoo bananas. Um, but, you know, that taking, you know, that stylistic, like kind of anime inspired, a uh, comic plus Grumpy Cat kind of equals the underfoot. So it was just kind of a, a good amalgamation of, of previous passion projects of mine. Um, and, you know, the underfoot is gritty. You know, there's there's violence, there's, you know, emotional arcs that show great depth in characters. Um, it's not just, you know, your average kid's book that, you know, treats kids like they're, you know, not as smart as they are because kids are freaking smart. Um, so, you know, we didn't want to sugarcoat any of the art, you know, animals get hurt. And in situations like this, you want to be as realistic as possible. I say that with, you know, glowing mushrooms and smart hamsters and all these other things. But um, yeah, I was very grateful to have projects in the past that have kind of perfectly melded me for this kind of project. That makes sense. No, and, it, yeah, uh, it really does. I'll add just a little bit to that question that I think all of us were a little bit worried that that same question was going to get asked by the editors of the of the comic and that we were going to have to roll back. We, I mean, we, I think we were we had a lot of internal meetings about being genuinely concerned that the publisher is going to push back and say, no, 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 you need to you need to really dial this back and make it way cuter, which I mean, I guess anything is possible. It didn't really fit the tone of the story. And we got very lucky. We, we really didn't get any pushback at all. Um, so that, uh, that we were able to, to get a little bit of that grittiness in there. Yeah, because you say I, that and it's like, ooh, like, I don't know if I could see this being like all cutesy and like bubbly and everything. Like this story has grit to it. It has weight to it. Like yeah. these guys are fighting for stuff. So yeah, I mean, imagine like the lizard scene with just like, hearts and stars yeah, and like, no. like chopping off the lizard tail like it's fine that, that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. like no it's not yeah. he doesn't need that tail she doesn't he didn't it. want it anyway no not at all <laughs> so, all right like, oh, oh sorry Sophia go go off of that so who would you say like when you guys were writing this was your geared toward audience like would you say like older kids like maybe like 10 11 and not so much like the younger kids with like picture books and stuff. Um, I, I'll start on that one, Please feel free to add. So um, in, to some extent, the publisher, you know, aims that canon. Um, so they, they decide who it's fit for. So part of it is that we wrote the story we wanted to write. 
So we wanted to write about these hamsters having this kind of adventures, even if it went to this point and it meant like a six-year-old would not understand what was happening or their parent might be like, there's blood in here. We're not gonna let you look at that yet. Um, my personal opinion is that anyone from seven to a hundred plus should enjoy it. Um, that's my thought. It, the market is eight to 12 year olds, the middle grade market. And we're very happy to have the eight to 12 year old market because you know, a lot of my formative reading and absorbing of creative works was in my childhood and that age group, you know, I was so absorbed in the many worlds, um, you know, as the other Emily referenced, um, you know, like the Rats of Nim and Watership Down and um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and things like that, you know, came out of that era for me. Um, so I would say we aimed it at to some extent, you know, we were told, okay, this is what it needs to fit. So there may have been an adjustment here or there, but this is really just a story that was something we wanted to build. And whoever the readers were, to some extent, I see that as up to the marketers and the publisher to be like, yes, we can sell this to this market. And then I'm like, great, go do it. So, <laughs> but feel free, Ben and Michelle, to share on that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think that's exactly right. I don't have a, I think too much to add to that. I, I think that we, generally speaking, um, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to write across a very broad spectrum of age ranges, everything from Grumpy Cat, which obviously skews very young to comics that are very, very R-rated, absolutely not for kids. Um, and generally, my writing process I found is mostly the same. Uh, I mean, themes are themes, and they they tend to they work across any sort of spectrum. It's 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 more minor details, a little bit of you know what language you use, um, how far you push certain lines. But I, generally speaking, yeah, I think that you find a story, you you sort of see where it kind of fits in your tone, how that story works, and you write it. And this story just happened to fit really well as written. Like I, I don't think we would have wanted to write it any younger. We wouldn't have wanted to write it any older. It just this is the the version of the story that worked. Yeah, I, I should add that Ben's previous writing did include horror comics, um, scary, scary stuff. And I previously have written uh, a Deadpool fan blog. So, you know, like <laughs> one of my favorite characters is, is a, you know, a crazy mercenary antihero. Um, and Ben writes really scary stuff. So it, it really is, you know, you can write in any style, but just chopping off a little bit of what might not fit into that makes the story appropriate for that group. Um, and the last thing I'll add, and, and I'm piggybacking off of Emily and Ben mentioning this in, in other interviews, is that we, all three of us remember being kids in middle grade and reading books that were dumbed down because like, you know, it's for kids. And we all hated that. We all hated yes. that. I'm like, don't treat us <laughs> like dumb idiots. We're not dumb idiots. Like, so we wanted to make sure that this book was challenging. Um, for for any reader it's like ben and emily made sure to include all of those science in between pages it's like i don't know what that means i have read those pages a dozen times i still don't get it but you know we we didn't want to pull punches like yeah right it's like we didn't want to we have succeeded in fooling people into understanding it or yes Oh, sorry, Michelle, I, something froze on here and I didn't mean to talk over you. I was just saying we've succeeded in fooling everyone to thinking we're super, super smart. <laughs> yeah, and like we, we just wanted to present a book. Yes, it's middle grade, but like we didn't want to dumb it down at all. Like we, we never want to make any readers feel the way that we have made, made felt that didn't work grammatically, but you know what I mean? Like we didn't want to make anyone feel like they shouldn't be challenged by a book. I do vividly remember as a person who has always loved books, one book I read as a child and literally looked at the toilet and thought, can I fit this in there? Can I flush it down the toilet? Because no one should read this book. It was an assigned reading book and it was so stupid, it, you know, for a fourth or fifth grader. I was like, I could have read this in second grade. So I, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been an appropriate book for someone. But I, as with what Michelle was saying, I always want to read books that appeal to, you know, my aesthetic and that includes looking things up. I, I mentioned this uh, another time recently. I just read a book by G.K. Chesterton in which I had to look up multiple things because he wrote 
you know, many years ago, he referenced uh, like a playwright I'd never heard of. You know, there were words in there I had not heard. I'm an attorney, I know Latin, and there were Latin phrases I'd never heard. So I would, you know, pause and I'd go and I'd look it up and I'd be like, oh, I learned something new, whether I retain it or not. You know, so I love that kind of thing. And if I love it, then there's got to be some kids out there who love it too. It's definitely one of the things that I appreciate the more I'm reading more of today's authors, like of the last few years, the creative works that have been coming out is that they are not making it like they're making it age appropriate still, but they're not using the language that like, it's not like the baby talk in a sense where it's like, we're now going to read this book. It's not that like they're playing to the strengths of these young readers and these young readers are reading everything. So I appreciate when I get books like this that do speak to a specific age range, but it's so broad that it's willing, that it's opening the minds up to a lot of other readers too. So I do appreciate that. Okay, Miriam, you're up kid. Okay, so um, going back to the topic about like the books that you had in your childhood, I wanted to ask if you think that like what you read and what you like listened to in your childhood kind of reflected into this book? Like if you had like fantasy, do you think that's why you, or like science fiction, do you think that's why you chose the genre science fiction for this book? Ben, do you want to start? Sure, uh, the, that's a great question. And the, the very simple answer is 100%, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I devoured uh, science fiction and fantasy of all types as a kid. Um, I was never really that interested in uh, books that didn't fall into what they call genre, which is to say just sort of standard historical type dramas, which are, are wonderful books. Lots of people like them. Absolutely nothing against those kind of writing. It just didn't fit for me. Uh, and I, that's, I just really preferred the fantasy and the science fiction, basically things that couldn't happen in real life. I was very firmly believed if, I, if it happened in real life, I just go outside and experience it. I don't want to read about it. I just go outside. I want something that couldn't possibly happen in real life. So there's no question that when, when I'm creating something, I, I 95% of what I'm interested in when I'm writing ties into the kinds of books, the kinds of music, the kinds of movies. Absolutely, no question. And I will uh, both agree and disagree with Ben on that one because I love genre stuff. I absolutely do. Um, but I also love biographies, nonfiction, histories, historical fiction, weird stories about crazy real things. I just read you know, an article yesterday that was an excerpt from a book on this woman who was one of the craziest con women people that I've ever read about in my life. And I had never heard of this person until yesterday. And I was fascinated and I read and I read, and I was like, what? And then what happened and what? You know, so, I mean, real stuff can be really cool. And um, like, you know, the, the classic literature, the novels of the time, I find those really fun. I should also mention that my mother is an English teacher who taught uh, both, you know, literature and British literature for many, many years in the high school system in New Jersey. So um, I grew up in a family where I had a lot of that. And I had two sisters who had all the other stuff too, you know, the sci-fi and the fantasy and the genre things. And I also had the Scholastic Book Club, which I will love forever. And, um, you know, you could pick out anything you wanted in that and, and add it to the collection. So all three of us, had various choices that ended up in our collective library. Um, so I grew up reading, you know, poetry, fiction, nonfiction, essays, uh, dramas, you know, literal screenplays or, or, or uh, you know, stage plays in books, you know, Macbeth and Shakespeare, but also um, Arthur C. Clarke and, uh, you know, um, Anne McCaffrey and Terry Pratchett, one of my all-time favorite writers uh, of a fantasy world that's a huge satire of our real world, um, which, you know, there's classic literature like Mark Twain's Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, another favorite, which is a fantasy based on a Welsh and English legend that is also a satire of his time. So these genres really fold into each other. And I think, yes, definitely sci-fi and fantasy influenced me, but mostly everything that I read comes into what, you know, was in my head. 
and uh I was I was mostly like that and I wasn't a huge fiction fan but I also so I have four older brothers um and they would take me to comic shops and they would buy me Spawn comics and Usagi Yojimbo and all these not super not age appropriate comics um but they they treated me like their age group and the next youngest is four years older than me so I was like hanging out with the cool kids at comic shops and going to like video game competitions and and anime conventions so it was really cool to just have that constant inflow of media um and I think I'm really lucky to have gotten that um but yeah, for me, it was it was all just fiction, just sci-fi, fantasy. I would devour, you know, books like Lord of the Rings, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, and anything and everything. Um, and I do think that it was just like a a huge ball of you know media that led me to what I wanted to do, which was comics. Like I knew from a very young age, I was like, "Yep, drawing comics. That's it. That's the end goal." I should add, um, until I was in law school, I had only read physically, read, like physical comics, I'd only read about five, not not series books, like just five books, because my sister owned about three individual issues of like Richie Rich or whatever, and a couple of Archie Digest. And that was my entire experience with paper comics until I was in my mid-20s. I watched a lot of like the animated, you know, X-Men, Batman, et cetera, but I had never really read comics until I was an adult. So everything can kind of fit in in weird ways. And that's what's happening with a lot of people. A lot of people are now discovering comics and graphic novels as adults now, because for a long time, it was always just considered superheroes. It was always just considered like, here's that little like 20 page loose paper comic that you'd go to the store get every week and continue with it and now they're seeing that it's so much more and there's so many different genres of it out there and it's really opening the eyes of a lot of readers adult readers especially so that's why I love them so all right Sophia you're up okay so I was wondering if you guys read your reviews on your books and if or you guys just choose to ignore them and you just don't want to go down that road? This is such a great question. <laughs> um, really is. I remember specifically after the first book came out, I'm I was like, over here laughing hysterically. did you go on to Goodreads yet? Oh my God. And just like, look at this good and look at this bad. And, and I think Ben was just like, you can't do it, dude. It's like, don't look at the bad reviews. Don't do it. It's the it's hamster a, hole. It's you not a go good down. road. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I will look at them sometimes, um, not very often, not like, not regularly or very often, probably when the book comes out or like, you know, something like that. I actually, um, yeah, because as Michelle said, it's one of those roads you might not want to go down. And when I see good reviews, I'm yay, and that's great. And sometimes they don't even mention the thing I like the most, but they mention something I didn't think of or whatever. And then I see bad reviews. And some of them legitimately, I can understand their concerns. You know, there are a lot of characters and it's hard to keep them straight. It is a big book with a lot of characters and we try our best with the distinctive looks from Michelle and the little character cards to make it clear and the personalities and their roles. But you know, you might get overwhelmed and that's fair. Then I see books that are just, um, or reviews rather, that I look at it and I'm like, you're not our reader. You don't, you said you don't understand what this book is for. You've said it was no fun for you. Okay, you know. There are books that I didn't, I one time hid the Grapes of Wrath under my bed for an entire year. Nobody told me I had to read this book. It wasn't assigned reading, but it was in my house and I started reading it in like the seventh grade maybe. And I was so mad at it around page 25. I was like, this is boring and there's just dust everywhere and I don't like this. And I threw it under the bed. And then like a year later, I dug it out and I read it and I thought it was really good. Because at that point, I was in a different reader place in my life, and I liked it. And I thought, oh, there's value in this. this is really interesting, you know. So sometimes the people are just not our readers. And the bad reviews, I've well, there's really not a lot of, we haven't got a lot of negative reviews, which is great. That makes me very happy. But the, the more negative ones I've seen, it's either reasonable critiques that I understand, or people who just didn't need to read our book. Um, but, but I don't look at them a lot. And mostly, like, I saw that there were Goodreads reviews for the new book only because I was trying to find a link to send somebody for the old book or the new book or something. And I went, oh, there are reviews. Look at this. It 
it's not even out yet. And I was like, oh, right. Our publisher sends the advanced copies and people actually go out and review it. That's very, that's very kind of them. They took the time. So that's kind of how I feel about reviews. Yeah, I'll add just a little bit to that. And it really is a good question. And uh, yeah, I shouldn't say the same thing that I texted Michelle. Just like, like, just do not read the reviews. Just don't let other people tell you if they're good or bad. That's great. If someone sends you a link and says, oh, this person thinks you're amazing. It's good for your ego. Read it. Fine. Generally speaking. And I can tell you from experience, having done a number of these, I, I, I've read, I don't even know how many reviews across however many books. I don't think I could tell you a single line from a single glowing review, however glowing. I don't think I could quote one word from them, but I could probably recite from memory every negative review I've ever gotten because that's the only ones that stick in your head. And the one you'll read 20 great reviews in a row talking about why you're the next Shakespeare. And then you get to the one that says you should be never in the business again. And that one will ruin your day. And it doesn't, it's just how, how my mind works. It's just, it, just skip it. I, and I will add, yeah, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Emily. No, I was just going to say it's scientifically proven that it's, I, it's some amount. I, I per, you know, pardon me if I'm forgetting the numbers, but it's like, it takes Five, one one positive or five positives to counter one negative in statements, something to that effect. And there's been research on it to show what our brains process in that way. And so what Ben's saying is absolutely true. You know, just don't. No. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. Yeah. And, and what I was just saying, and a lot. I mean, it all like sort of kind of joking with it. For the first book, I did read. Well, actually, recently, I don't remember how I came across it, but I did wind up going against my own advice. And but at this point is the first book. At some point they age out. Like you did, if someone wants to say something negative about Splitsville, you know, I mean, it's, it's a 10 year old book. I don't care. Um, but for, uh, for Underfoot, the first one, there's a review. I think it's on Amazon. Maybe it's Goodreads, but it did make me laugh out loud. It was a one-star review. And it literally says this book was perfect for its intended, literally I'm quoting it, perfect for its intended audience. Exactly the right kind of book. I'm too old for this. It didn't work for me one star. But that, I mean, that's, that, that's why you just don't read, just don't read the reviews. Like why, you're just gonna drive yourself crazy with that, you know? It's like, why did you even leave right, yeah, why, why, you leave the, oh. why'd you leave that review? Yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have to say, there was a review on Amazon that gave it four stars and the whole of the review was um, something to the effect of, it had hamsters, I really liked it. I might read the next one if I learn how to read by then. And I'm like, I don't even understand what this review means. It's kind of funny. They gave us four stars, so I guess it's cool. But I will. one more thing I will add to all of this is if you love the product you have made, that does help with not feeling so bad if somebody else didn't get it or like it. Because I'm proud of these books. I'm proud of what we've done and what we've done with the other partners who aren't here right now. All, all the people who have worked on you know, everything from the lettering and the flatting and the, and the maps to the publishing and marketing. I'm proud of everything that we've done with it. And it means something to me. And we created a book and put it out into the world and people read it and large people and small people come up to us and say, oh, this was really great. It meant something to us. People take time out of their day to email and say, my son read this book and really loved it. And it meant a lot to us or whatever. And so if there are a few people who don't like it, eh, that's all, and you know. Eh. The, the last thing I'll add is that constructive criticism is great. Unconstructive criticism is just dust in the wind. If someone can offer you something, you're like, you know, it was really hard for me to, you know, visually understand blank. It's like, okay, I can, I can incorporate that. Saying this book was perfect except for not for me, just don't say it. Yeah, and there's no point in saying it. That's, that's yeah. it's not helping anyone. Right, exactly. I, I second that. Constructive criticism, I welcome, you know, if there's something I can do about it, maybe not for this book, but for an upcoming book. Um, you know, in my other life, I worked in a job where you can submit a draft of something and there's red line and stuff all over it. You know, hopefully not forever, maybe when you're first learning. But you learn, that's how you learn how to be better at your craft. And so that's fine. But yeah, I mean, not, not the mean stuff for just, or the pointless stuff. <laughs> that's not necessary. You don't need the, the like you, you'll take some of like the, like you said, the constructive criticism and even listen to some of the, the stuff that people were saying, maybe like the negative stuff, because it, it, it can and sometimes help, but 
yeah, if it's not bring anything to the table where it's going to make the next episode issue, whatever, stronger, um, then it's just that person saying, ah, I just want to have my voice be heard. And it's like, oh, okay, but you didn't help us in any way. So, <laughs> all right, Miriam, go kid. Yeah, um, so like I was wondering when you're, what's it called, writing underfoot? I'm not really sure how to like explain it, but like, when you're going back to the review thing, do you actually like listen to some of the negative ones if they will like help you? Like, let's say that a lot of people are saying that they didn't like one part, like going on to the next series in the book, would you actually listen to the negative reviews and kind of fix what you feel like what they want? Uh, I'll start out on this one. Um, to an extent, no, uh, because here's the reason. I've got Ben and Ben's got me in the writing arena. So that's two of us already. We've got Michelle in the art arena. Then we've got our letterer who actually is a creator in his, in his own right. And if something completely doesn't make sense, he might call it to our attention. And on top of that, we've got a really great editor. And our editor is the key person that we would listen to beyond our points. You know, when Ben and I've already worked on something and, and it's getting to Michelle, because actually the script is seen by our editor you know, so that Michelle doesn't draw a whole thing before the editor sees it. The script is seen by the editor who works with us on the script. And once it's okayed, Michelle starts working on it. And then we might catch more stuff as Michelle's working on it. And then as Tom's working on it, our letterer, um, Tom Zoller. And so it's got a whole process already. And our editor has, in fact, come to us. And this is really important, found plot hole things, or not necessarily like a, a, a gaping, glaring hole, but a as the reader who isn't in your head, I'm confused as to where you got from here to here. And we know it and we can explain it, but maybe we left out a sentence, you know, or whatever the case may be. And Ben, and you can address this more, Ben, um, we definitely sometimes react badly to the first, you know, round of reading this and saying, no, but I, I did it like this for this reason. And then you look at it like five hours later after you've paced around your apartment for a while or whatever, and you say, oh, okay, yeah, I, I get it. That's, that makes sense. We should rewrite this part or put this new sentence in. So Ben also feels, I think, similar. Please share your perspective, Ben. Sure, and yeah, sort of two things to that. One, sometimes even if we wanted to fix something, it can't be done because usually by the time the reader is reading, we're way out ahead. Um, and so that's particularly true for uh, if you're doing monthly comics, or the, as we talked before, it's sort of the floppy 22 pages that come out every month. It's always very funny to me when, when you get the reviews, you know, demanding that something change for the next issue or two, the, the way the industry works, by the time you're reading that one issue, there's usually three other months worth of issues done in the can getting ready to be published. There, there's no fix. It's too late. We've already, you know, it's already done. Um, but, uh, but if, if there's, if we're, if something that could be fixed and it's a, it, it seems like a notable concern, uh, you know, if I don't, I don't know what that would be, but if it was, if it's some notable concern, yeah, I, I think that we would, we would certainly stop and consider addressing it. If it was, uh, something that could be fixed and seemed to make sense and was a consistent constructive criticism. Absolutely. Uh, to, to Emily's point, what she was talking about, which is absolutely true for me. Um, I have long since learned that. Every time I submit a script to the publisher, it is the greatest script ever written. It is no one has ever written a script that good. No one will ever write a script that good again. It is a perfect script and I am done with my work. Thank you. So then it comes back with comments and I slam the computer down. What are they thinking? How do they not realize this was the greatest assembly of words ever put together in this order? This is the, this is amazing. I was going to change everyone's life. And so I've just learned that I shut the computer, I go outside for a couple of days, you know, whatever. But when I come back, usually the next day and read it, I go, oh, you know what, actually, yeah, okay, all this makes sense. Okay, yeah, all right, I could, uh, this all works. And invariably, the, you know, it, it levels up. But it, there's, a, there's an ego attached to it. I think any creator has a little bit of that. I don't think there's any way around it. And you, you have to give yourself a little bit of distance to, to look at it and go, okay, you know what, maybe this wasn't, maybe it was the second greatest script ever written, maybe not the first greatest. I've got, I've got room for improvement. <laughs> I should add before we throw over to Michelle, um, it, it is true that if there was, if, 
so that's why I said generally, I wouldn't necessarily be listening to that. But it is true, as Ben said, if there's some glaring problem that nobody caught, including our editor, and then it gets out into the world, or if there's some criticism that we read and we're like, ooh, yeah, that came off the wrong way, of course we would, in, in that instance, try to fix it. I think it's just relatively rare that a critique gets to that point. And I would also hope that we are trying to use our safety net enough that it would be relatively rare. Um, I will also say to Ben's other point, uh, legitimately, we have a script for a single issue of a story that we want to tell about one of our side characters. And Ben and I came up with this idea to, to write out this issue, which may in fact someday see publication. We hope so, but it's not in the main storyline right now. And I told Ben, oh, I want to do this thing with this stuff. And he sat down on a plane and started a draft of it and sent it to me. And I was like, no, but I had this completely other idea and like made all these notes. And then Ben was like, oh, okay. And then like rewrote half the script because, you know, we working together, we're like, no, we wanted to do it this way, but also this way. And like, so the, the, the whole thing is we will listen to each other and our, our team a lot. And if there was someone in public life who was just like, this is a big problem, you know, yes, we, we'd listen to them too. Um, Michelle? I mean, I, I don't know what else to add. Yeah, but you can't really change anything that's published unless you get like a cool like five year anniversary hardcover updated edition, which, you know, that's in a couple of years. But um, I do always try to internalize good feedback. Like, like I was saying, like if, if someone says, you know, I had a really hard time visualizing this, like I've had some feedback that, you know, like some of the pages were really dark. And um, I now understand ink density, which is something that I have never had to think about before because most of the stuff that I've done is either on the web. So you don't have to think about printing or it's grumpy cat and everything's bright and colorful and cheery. And I've never had to paint a, or sorry, illustrate a night scene that was then printed with ink on paper. So I have learned a lot through this process and I do want to internalize all of this feedback that is helpful. Um, but other criticism, it's like, we can't change the book. It's done, it's printed. There are yeah. Thousands of copies out there, it's done. <laughs> it's not like you can start like saying, okay, so in this next episode, the like this next like version of it, we're gonna have these two characters doing this together now. It's like, nope, that's the, like, we can't ship everybody together right now, folks. Like we yeah. have to- And the good guys are now turtles. Yeah, You right. know, like, yeah. oh. No, that's not happening. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, so um, we are going to start wrapping this up because yes, I wanna be mindful of everyone's time and everything like that. And I know, like I said, these, these lovely ladies, they do have other things they need to do like homework. I know you guys have homework. Um, okay, so Sophia, out. I know. Sophia, go for it, kid. So it's not an Amongst the Book podcast if we don't ask you guys, what are your zodiac signs? So like Western Zodiac or Eastern Zodiac? Whatever you want to give us. You can give us both if you want. Both? I am a tiger Leo, so I am a cat a thousand percent. <laughs> so you're the tiger born late July. You were destined to grumpy work on that grumpy sense. cat. I was going to say you were yeah, destined I to work on grumpy cat. <laughs> it was destiny. Uh, I'm, I'm a Pisces, so I'm a fish. Hopefully not a cold fish, but um, I'm, I'm actually a couple of fish that swim around each other, I guess. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm mercurial. I'm a, yeah, a Eastern Zodiac is dragon, which is the best one. So I win, I win that one. And uh, an Aquarius for Western Zodiac, which I think maybe is the most boring one. Um, so maybe I lose that one. Like it's just a dude carrying a bucket of water. Like what's the, that's not very exciting. But I like that you're a little fire and water though. Yeah, all right, I'll oh, take no. that. Yeah. Wait, yeah. does this mean that your bucket has the fish in it? Am I just swimming around in the little bucket yeah, you carry around? Right. That's, that's a terrible right. idea. <laughs> I veto, I veto. I'll go, I'll go to the other Zodiac, thank you. <laughs> no, well, um, on that note, as we learned that, you know, now Ben is carrying Emily around in a bucket. <laughs> okay, that seems just too weird. <laughs> but, but I do like this, I like this little dynamic that you guys have. We have water, so we have Ben carrying a bucket that may or may not have Emily's Pisces in it. And then we have Michelle sitting over there looking in the bucket saying, hmm, I'm watching you fish, like the cat's watching you. 
I think Michelle's in charge. Yes, That's what I, it is. She's I in think charge this of is everything. A little, like this trio was meant to happen. <laughs> um, but on that note, I I would like to just say that I really do appreciate this series that you guys have put out um, for reasons that I have already said that yes, you have created a story that is accessible to readers of all ages, I feel. Um, and you're doing it in a very smart way where you are not changing language or dumbing it down in a sense for anybody. Um, that with, where the words may not resonate with someone, the pictures are going to, and they're gonna help elevate the story even more. Um, so I do appreciate this series and I look forward to all of the other work you guys do together. Um, and separately as well. So that is from Thank me. you so much. Thank you. That means a lot to us as creators. I mean, I speak for myself, but it does. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. And it's always good. Like, I love talking with students. Yeah. It's like, I, if I had something like this accessible to me at, at your guys' age, I would have been, instead of comics 100%, I would have been comics like 1,000%. Yeah. These, so thank you for doing it. Well, thank you yeah, so much for being a part we're, of we're, this. We're thrilled. We're thrilled when folks are reading it. That's 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 why we're writing it. So we're, we're very <laughs> grateful to have anyone reading it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And <laughs> I've been recommending it to so many people already too. So yeah. Great. Um, thank you. <laughs> but thank you again, guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. And like I said, we look forward to all of your future work. So great. Thank you all so much. It's great to be thank here. Thank you for your great questions. Yeah, there great questions. Awesome questions. <laughs> All right. Bye, guys. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us. And thank you to Ben, Emily, and Michelle for letting us pick your brains about writing, your inspiration, and the collaborative process. You can find their books at onipress.com, at your favorite local bookstores, and at your public library. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Benjamin P. Fisher, and on Instagram at Benjamin P. Fisher. You can follow Emily at the Emily Ease on Twitter, and on Instagram at the Emily Ease. You can find Michelle on Twitter at Qubits, and on Instagram at Kuchubits. Follow us on Twitter at amongst the books underscore podcast and on Instagram at Amongst the Books Podcast. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review us and share us with all of your friends. Our theme music is written, recorded, and produced by Jake Thistle. You can follow Jake on Instagram at Jake Thistle Music. Thank you for joining us. You will be hearing from us soon, but for now, stay happy stay healthy, and keep reading.